So do you still feel like you were in that fog from Thanksgiving? No worries. Today's interview is guaranteed to get your brain moving again. Let's get it. One question, one topic, multiple perspectives for each one. You are listening to the Young Catholic Podcast. Happy liturgical new year. I hope that you all had a great Thanksgiving. And if you're not from the States, I hope you had a really good meal over the weekend because I definitely did on Thursday. We are continuing the topic of how should we read the Bible, and today I speak to Dr. Gregory Vall. Dr. Vall is professor of scripture at Notre Dame Seminary. He also taught at the Catholic University of America, the Franciscan University of Steubenville, and Ave Maria University, where he served as director of the PhD program. Dr. Vall holds a PhD in Semitic languages and literatures from the Catholic University of America. He is the author of Learning Christ, Ignatius of Antioch and the Mystery of Redemption, and has published articles in Biblica, The Bible Today, Catholic Biblical Quarterly, Journal of Biblical Literature, Nova et Vetera, Seminary Journal, The Thomist, and Vetus Testamentum. Dr. Vall is a native of Cleveland, Ohio. He and his wife, Lourdes, and their four children, Teresa, Gregory, Ezra, and Mark, reside in Covington, Louisiana. This will be part one of the interview, and the second part will air next Wednesday. So, here we go. So let's start off with the first question. Why are there different... I know I had said versions of the Bible, but you had a much better word for it, I guess. uh, Translations. Translations of the Bible. What is the right one? Is there a right one? And do you have a favorite translation of the Bible that you prefer to use? Mm -hmm. Okay. So, uh, first of all, we have to remember we're dealing with ancient texts written in languages that are now dead. They're not living, even though the people in Israel speak Hebrew, it's not the same sort of Hebrew that's you know, that the Old Testament is written in. People in Greece speak Greek, but it's not at all the same sort of Greek that the New Testament is written in. So uh, these are ancient dead languages, and they're not easy to translate. Even if you understand them very well, they're not easy to translate because each language has its own kind of genius, its own way of looking at the world, and... um, Anytime you try to translate anything, at least anything significant, from one language into another, you're trying to um, capture something of the genius of that language in your own language or a different language, and that's that's always going to be a challenge. So uh, there are many points on which scholars disagree about how exactly to understand this verse or that verse or this passage or that, and that accounts for a lot of the differences among the the translations that you could choose from. Um, Also, there are different 
priorities and concerns that different translators have. Uh, we might think, or we might like to think that anybody who's translating the Bible, that their absolute number one priority would be to be as accurate as possible. I would hope so. You would hope so, but it's not always the number one overriding. Uh, you know, there are some some translations, especially in recent decades, have um, a certain kind of political agenda or, or politically correct agenda, and that colors the way they translate a lot of things in the Bible. So sometimes things like that enter in as well. My uh, personal favorite English translation is the Revised Standard Version, which has been around for um, something like 70 years. It, um, uh, yeah, it, it actually started in the 1940s and the New Testament, or the Old Testament was complete 1952. So it's been around quite a while. And um, it's, you know, it, it's pretty accurate. And, and yet it's not stilted English. It's not like so woodenly literal that it loses all the literary quality. It's actually very nice English. Some people would say it's a little bit old fashioned English. I spent a, a, a lot of years learning the biblical languages. So most of the time when I sit down to read the Bible, I'm reading in the Hebrew or Greek not or Aramaic for a few passages, um, not so much looking at the translations. I know in high school, we had used the, the New American Bible, and I was just, I guess, curious as to if you knew why we used that Bible. Is that just standard in the archdiocese? or It's pretty much standard uh, throughout America and uh, maybe even much of the English-speaking world, although not entirely. The the New American Bible has a long history to it. It goes back to at least the 1930s and 40s when there was a group of scholars, some of whom were at Catholic University of America in Washington, who uh, were setting about to... They, they were revising an old translation, and more and more they... Uh, got the idea of making a fresh translation of the Old Testament directly from the Hebrew into English, which at that time was kind of a new idea for Catholics to have. Catholics usually used translations that were made from the Latin version, the ancient Latin. Um, so anyway, the uh, they literally spent decades working on it, and the original New American Bible Old Testament, which came out in 1970 when they were finally finished with it, um, I, I think is brilliant. I mean, there's, there's, I, I still have two copies of that old one. You can't find it. It's not in print. It's very hard to find nowadays. I have two copies of it. I keep one here at, at the seminary and one at home. Um, and it, it, it's kind of a free translation, but the, the, the people who did it knew their Hebrew really, really well. So, uh, and, and there was a relationship from the beginning between that translation team and the U.S. bishops. So it's not surprising, uh, you know, that it, it got used for the uh, lectionary. Now, since 1970, it's been through a whole series of revisions. The New Testament was revised in 1986. The Psalms were revised in 1991. Most people agree that was a really awful revision of the Psalms. There was another one later. They they re revised, I think, pretty much the whole Old Testament eventually. It came out in the early 2000s. 
So it's been through a long kind of checkered history. And um, like all translations, it has its strengths and its weaknesses. I think that's really kind of the, the bottom line here. There's no, there is no one perfect, accurate translation. There are a number of good ones, but even among the good ones, they all have different strengths and weaknesses. How do we know that the Bible is based on actual events and not myths? Even if it wasn't explicitly stated in a conversation, I feel like sometimes when you get into talks with people who are maybe not not necessarily Christian or even religious, and you're talking about the Bible, some people just kind of glaze over and say, yeah, yeah. So for some parts of the Bible, we have uh, very solid contemporaneous evidence, I mean, evidence more or less contemporary to the events that largely corroborate the biblical record. I can't, I wouldn't say absolutely prove, but just take, for example, um, the books of Kings, first and second Kings, especially second Kings. There are any number of names of Kings, Israelite Kings, non-Israelite Kings, uh, and cities and wars and events in that book that are also found in uh, extra-biblical records from that period, from things that archaeologists have dug up in Mesopotamia or in Canaan, Israel, um, that go back to that time period. So, you know, just for example, the, um, the Israelite king Omri uh, he's a relatively minor figure in the biblical record, but we have records from him from the ancient Near East that indicate that he was actually a pretty significant international figure uh, and well-known. A later king, Jehu, we not only have references to him, we actually have a depiction uh, on, uh, on stone of him bringing, um, like a carving on stone, or a, a bas-relief, I guess, of him bringing tribute to the Assyrian king and presenting it before him. So um, there are places in the Bible where we actually have more or less contemporaneous records that have been unearthed by archaeologists that corroborate some things that are in the Bible. But you can't prove everything. And and there are parts, I mean, let's put it this way, not not all parts of the Bible, certainly not all parts of the Old Testament, have the same sort of relationship to historical facts. There are, um, you know, the, for, for example, the book of Genesis is very different from the book of Kings, the books of Kings. Um, and even though we have many, literally thousands of texts and, and artifacts and records from um, the time period covered by Genesis, the time of the patriarchs, there isn't a single individual named in Genesis who is also named in these extra biblical records. So there's some, you know, there's, there's, I'm not saying that it's all fiction, but, but it's clearly a different sort of relationship to historical fact. Uh, there's all, all kinds of different, um, literary genres within the Bible, both testaments. And um, you, you can have some things are a little closer to a kind of mix of history and fiction or, or history and imagination than other things. As far as myth goes, that term, depending on how you understand it, 
doesn't apply to too much at all in the Bible, I don't think, especially if myth means, you know, a story about the gods. Um, one of the few passages that might, uh, you know, be appropriately spoken of that way would be the passage in Genesis 6 about the uh, sons of God and the daughters of men. But that that jumps out as so unusual within the Bible that uh, it's, it's a, a kind of the exception that proves the rule, I guess. What languages was the Bible written in, and can we trust their translation? So, um, in the Old Testament, over 90% is written in Hebrew, in classical and post-classical biblical Hebrew. Um, the remaining part, less than 10%, you have some chapters of certain books that are in Aramaic, which and, and Hebrew and Aramaic are both Semitic languages. They're not part of the Indo-European languages that we're mostly familiar with. You know, English and Spanish and German and and Norwegian and Greek and Latin and Farsi and Hindi. I mean, all these languages are Indo-European, um, but Hebrew and Aramaic and Arabic and a few others are Semitic languages. So, a whole different family of languages. So uh, there are some parts of the Old Testament in Aramaic, as well as a lot in Hebrew. And then there are two books in the Old Testament that um, were pretty clearly written in Greek. And that's the Book of Wisdom, or it's also called Wisdom of Solomon, and the uh, second Book of Maccabees. There is a very common misconception. A lot of people think that the uh, that all the books that are only in the Catholic Bible and not in Protestant Bibles, the seven deuterocanonical books, a lot of people think those were all written in Greek. That's not true. Most of them were written in Hebrew or Aramaic. Only Wisdom and Second Maccabees were written in Greek. In the New Testament, it's a little simpler. All 27 books are written in Greek, but there are, um, there are a few words and phrases, especially in St. Mark's Gospel, of Aramaic, because uh, Aramaic was the language that our Lord and the apostles spoke. So Mark will give us little words and phrases like "efatach," be opened, or "talithakum," little girl, get up, or "abba," father. And each time Mark gives those words or phrases, he immediately tells his readers in Greek what they mean. So he doesn't presume that his readers knew that language. He just wants to give them a little feel of the language that Jesus actually used, a little realia, you might say. Generally speaking, Christian denominations have different beliefs about the Eucharist. How do we know that Jesus meant what he meant and that the Eucharist is not a symbol? I guess the short answer is we know from Scripture and tradition together. Um, I think with regard to the relevant Scripture passages, namely the, the, the different accounts of the institution of the Eucharist in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and 1 Corinthians. Um, when it comes to those four passages, plus the passage about the Eucharist in the Bread of Life discourse in John chapter 6, beginning around verse 51, 52. When it comes to those passages, the burden of proof is really on anyone who would suggests that Jesus is only speaking symbolically. In other words, the much more natural way to take him is uh, that he's saying what he means, 
this is my body, this is my blood, not this is a symbol of my body. And, uh, and speaking of one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood. When, in John chapter 6, when this, when his words cause consternation among his own disciples, and some of them are deeply troubled by what he said, and they want to, you know, they're going to go off and leave him, Jesus doesn't say, oh wait, you misunderstood, I was only talking symbolically. You know, um, so I think, you know, the, the, the burden of proof would be on someone who would take it um, anything but straightforwardly. Yeah. Now, I mentioned tradition, though. Uh, another thing that needs to be considered is, you know, how did the earliest Christians understand what Jesus said beyond the New Testament? So, for example, we have St. Ignatius of Antioch, who was a very early church father. He died around 113 BC, um, BC, AD, 113 AD. So, he's living just decades after the New Testament books were written, um, he he speaks about the Eucharist in several passages in his letters. And in one of the passages, he um, he's criticizing a heretical group called the Docetists who think that Jesus was not really human, that he merely appeared to be human, and he merely appeared to die in the flesh. And he notes that these people, as he says, they um, they stay away from the Eucharist and from prayer, meaning the communal prayer, like they, they absent themselves from the Eucharist. He says, because they do not confess the Eucharist to be the flesh of our Lord Jesus, the flesh that suffered for us and that the Father in his kindness raised. So there you have a bishop from the very early church who's a martyr, who's a, a, a reliable teacher of the faith, he clearly took, he clearly understood the Eucharist to be the, re, what we would say, the real presence of Christ, uh, body, blood, soul, and divinity. And he's, um, he's you know, correcting these, these docetists who, had, who were, you know, had really gone off the rails in terms of how they saw Jesus for having... Um, uh, you know, a different view of the Eucharist, a deficient view of the Eucharist. Where do we draw the line between taking passages in the Bible literally and figuratively? Mm-hmm. Well, can I ask you a question first? Sure. Um, what do you mean by literally? What do you mean by taking something literally? I guess when I was writing, writing the question, it would be, for example, the passage that or the passages that we were talking about with Jesus instituting um, the body and blood, um, that he meant what he meant of, this is my body, this is my blood. And we know that that is, that is what he meant for the reasons that you just stated. So I guess that's what I mean by taking it, here's the passage, this is word for word what they are meaning, as opposed to, um, like, for example, I know certain parables that Jesus stated were metaphors for right. bigger topics. Right. So... So, so in that sense, taking it literally means taking it, taking the, the text on its own terms. If we can discern that a text is, in fact, a parable, we read it as a parable. Um, if it's presenting itself as a history, you know, with names and dates and, and a sequence, a plausible sequence of events, then we, you know, we take that as a history. So in, in that's, in that sense, 
I think the Church Fathers, St. Augustine, St. Thomas Aquinas certainly would say we should take it all literally. That is, we take the whole Bible on its own terms. And, and so there are parts that are relating, you know, more or less straightforwardly historical events and facts. There are other parts that are not. And so the, then the trick becomes, um, how well can we discern the different literary genres within the Bible? Do we know when different books are presenting themselves as um, historical fact or not? Um, we Just this morning in class, we were looking at the book of Daniel, and there, there are many things within the book of Daniel, starting in the opening verses, that strongly suggest it's not meant to be taken as a straightforward record of history. Um, it, it flatly contradicts Second Kings in its opening verses, and the author did that on purpose to send us a kind of signal that he's doing something else. So, so there are books um, that are not straightforward history, quite a few, I would say. There are many that are giving us, that are dealing with historical events, but in different ways. The Catechism says about the opening chapters of Genesis that, that they contain figurative language or symbolic language. It says that several times. At the same time, it says it's dealing with real events. So God really created the world. He really made um, man in his own image. Uh, our first parents really disobeyed and sinned against God, and this has had an effect on the rest of us ever since. Those are real events that really happened but they're presented to us through highly symbolic and figurative language where we have, you know, trees that are not named for the fruit on them, but for knowledge of good and evil and things like that. And, and, and that has, and, and, um, you know, a man being formed from the dust and a woman from, uh, from the rib of man, uh, a, a lot of that, uh, seems to be symbolic for, for lack of a better term. I know I wanted to ask you as well, specifically in the Old Testament, because I know that's your bread and butter, especially during the time of Moses and the plagues and parting of the Red Sea. I would not be surprised people who maybe grew up Catholic and were taught it, if at some point people wondered, are the plagues and parting of the Red Sea, is that meant to be taking that this is actual an account of history, especially because it's so incredible with the things that happen? How do you read it? Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's a trickier one. First of all, the, the whole Exodus event that Israel came forth from Egypt, you know, that God delivered them from slavery, that he, um, uh, miraculously brought them through a body of water called the Sea of Reeds in Hebrew, Yam Suf, though it's translated Red Sea, um, that he led them in the wilderness, that gave them his law and so forth and brought them into the Holy Land. That sequence of events, was so foundational to Israel that they narrated over and over again in different parts of the Bible, in the Old Testament, in different ways, in various ways. Um, but it's so basic to them, it's like, I think they didn't have to stop and say, it, did this really happen or didn't it? Because they wouldn't exist without it. They wouldn't be Israel without the Exodus. It's that real to them. It's that, it's had that kind of impact on them. So, in, in that sort of simple sense, uh, I, I don't have any trouble affirming that this really happened. But when you look at the book of Exodus itself, and again, it's only one of any number of 
narrations of the Exodus event in the Old Testament, although it's the most important, I guess you could say. When you look at the book of Exodus itself, we clearly have different sources that have been brought together. It's a, it's a sort of composite book. There seem to be um, multiple accounts of the crossing of the sea, for example, woven together in chapters 14 and 15. One of them is a very ancient poetic account. The other two are in prose, but they're kind of dovetailed together. Um, and then you have, <laughs> yeah, there, there's a lot of different ways to take the plagues. Um, I kind of have a better feel for how to take them theologically than in terms of what, what actually happened. I'm not sure we'll ever know exactly what exactly happened, you know, or if we we need to know. But um, but I do believe that the inspired text of Exodus gives us, you know, um, it, it, it gives us what God wants us to have and puts us in touch with the deepest truth of those foundational events. And I think that's roughly how Israel understood them. Do we know who wrote different passages in the Old Testament and how many years passed between the Old and the New Testament? Yeah, most of the books in the Old Testament are anonymous. Um, I mean, you do have the prophetic books with a, you know, a prophet's name attached. In the case of, let's say, um, Amos, or, or maybe better, Hosea, book of Hosea, which is one of the earliest, um, it, it, as far as we can tell, the prophecies that are in there are really Hosea's prophecies. And no, did he write them down himself? Did he have a secretary who wrote them down? Or were they preserved orally for a while and then put in writing? We don't know. But there are, um, you know, there's an introduction to the book of Hosea, very brief, just a few verses that seems to come from an editor. There are a few places in the book of Hosea where it looks like things that he prophesied about the northern kingdom were later applied to the southern kingdom, to the kingdom of Judah. So there's some signs within the book of the book kind of being updated and maybe even put together by somebody living after Hosea. Maybe. Um, but, but for most of the predic, pro, I'm sorry, most of the prophetic books, most of the time, it seems like we're getting, you know, the words of the prophets themselves. Um, with, with some notable exceptions. The rest of the Old Testament, most of the books are, are, um, anonymous in one way or another. We can sometimes say something about the different authors from the books themselves. For example, um, many scholars think, and I, I certainly would agree with this, that there are large parts of the first three books of, I'm sorry, the first four books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, that were composed by uh, what we call the priestly school, a group of priestly scribes who had a, a certain vocabulary, a certain set of interests, a certain theological viewpoint, and their way of writing is so distinctive that we can see, oh, this passage was written by the priestly school, that passage was, and other passages, especially in the book of Deuteronomy, written by the Deuteronomic school. So there, you know, there are things we can say with some confidence about the different authors or schools of authors, but for the most part, it's, you know, educated guessing. How much 
time has passed between Old Testament and New yeah. Testament? Well, um, for Catholics, almost none at all, because uh, in in the deuterocanonicals, by which we mean the books that are in the Catholic Old Testament that are not found in the Jewish Bible and not found in Protestant Bibles, for those books, and there, there are seven of them, Tobit, Judith, uh, Baruch, 1st Maccabees, 2nd Maccabees, Wisdom, and Sirach. For those seven books, um, they, they all seem to be written quite late in the Old Testament period. So, um, the, the Jewish rab, the ancient Jewish rabbis had an idea that there was an end to prophecy and an end to what we would call inspired writing around roughly 400 BC, uh, that Malachi was the last of the prophets. And after that, you didn't have prophecy. And so when they knew that a book was later than that, like Sirach, I should have mentioned Sirach, by the way, we know who authored that one. So uh, Jesus authored that one. Jesus, son of Eleazar, son of Sirach, not Jesus of Nazareth. But anyway, we know when he wrote, because he tells us, he mentions his contemporary high priest, uh, Onias II, and, or Simon ben Onias II. He quotes almost everything else or alludes to almost everything else that was already written in the Old Testament. So we know his book is very late, and the ancient rabbis knew it was late, and that's one of the reasons why they left it out of their Bibles. But for Catholics who accept those books, and the Church clearly teaches us to accept them as Scripture, um, those books pretty much take us right down to the period immediately before the Incarnation. In fact, the Book of Wisdom was probably written somewhere around 25 BC. In other words, just decades before uh, the Incarnation, if that. So, um, Protestants will sometimes speak of an intertestamental period, a period between the Testaments. For Catholics, there isn't really a, an intertestamental period. What evidence is there proving some of the events in the Bible occurred? I know that we already touched on this, and I know with past interviewees that the word proven is such an interesting term to use. And unfortunately, nowadays, the conversation of prove this to me and prove this to me seems to be more frequent. So that's why I usually ask it. Okay. Well, let me take two different angles at it. Um, First of all, in the last 200, 220 years, archaeologists have unearthed um, an enormous amount, thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of artifacts from the ancient Near East, the background of the Old Testament, and from the Greco-Roman world, the background of the New Testament. Um, Whole texts, whole languages, libraries of, uh, you know, of, of, of texts have been discovered. Um, even, you could even in some way speak of civilizations or at least sub-civilizations that we didn't know about before that have been discovered. Not all of this sheds direct light on the Bible, but some of it does. And, in, and there are places where, again, I wouldn't say absolutely proves something true in the Bible, but gives us a strong predisposition to accept the Bible, or at least large parts of it, as, as giving us, a, a, you know, an accurate record. So, um, for example, 
in Acts of the Apostles 18. St. Paul is in Corinth. He's brought before um, the, a, a proconsul, a Roman proconsul, which means he's a representative of the local, of the um, Roman province of Achaia. Uh, and his name is given, um, Gallio, right? So uh, I forget exactly when, but early in the 20th century, an inscription with Gallio's name and, and identification that he was proconsul at a certain time was discovered. Now, that doesn't absolutely prove that everything said there happened, but it shows that the author of Acts knew who the proconsul was in Achaia at that, at that time. And there are enough of those, just, just in terms of the Acts of the Apostles and Paul's letters, there are enough of those that give us um, a sort of strong predisposition for accepting the biblical record. Um, uh, again, I, I, I'm not saying that that they prove everything, but but um, they're helpful, and they're also helpful in kind of piecing together in what order did different things happen, and how how do we put the things that are mentioned in Paul's letters together with what Luke mentions in Acts of the Apostles, which can be a trick too, right? But if I could take a different uh, approach at this this whole sort of uh, set of questions. Um, okay, I, let, let's take the Gospels, which are I- unique in a couple of ways. They're unique in importance because they're about the most important person and the most important events in, in salvation history, right? But they're also unique in the way they're written, and they're unique in that we have four of them dealing with the same person and events. And that helps us see some things that we might not otherwise and I think one of the things that helps us see is that all four of the gospel writers, while they're giving us the real Jesus and the real events, they are, they are exercising a degree of literary license, a degree of literary freedom, of artistic freedom. And the Holy Spirit seems to have been just fine with that. In fact, he uses, the Holy Spirit uses, used their um, artistic skill, their literary skill. They're good writers. They know what they're doing. So let's take an example. Um, in Mark chapter 11, we have the uh, triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Jesus enters Jerusalem a week, you know, before his death, uh, Palm Sunday, with, you know, with the palm branches and the hosannas and everything. So that's Palm Sunday. Um, St. Mark says, Right after he, he, you know, he enters into Jerusalem, Mark narrates how he went to the temple, looked around for a while, and then it was already late in the day, and so they, he, he went out to Bethany to, to lodge for the night outside the city in the village of Bethany where he knew Mary and Martha and Lazarus and so on. So he stays with friends, with his disciples, okay? Next morning, Monday following Palm Sunday, Mark says, they started back into the city of Jerusalem. Jesus sees a fig tree in leaf. He's hungry, hasn't had breakfast yet, goes up to the fig tree and can't find any fruit. And so he curses the fig tree. May, you know, no one ever eat fruit from you again. And Mark says very pointedly, and his disciples heard him say this, right? They continue on into Jerusalem. And at that point, Jesus goes back to the temple, 
and he cleanses the temple. He casts out the, you know, the money changers, overturns their tables and their chair, their chairs, and so on. So you have the cleansing of the temple. Um, then later that afternoon, they leave Jerusalem again. Now, mind you, this is Monday when Jesus cleanses the temple, according to Mark. They leave uh, Jerusalem, head back to Bethany, and on their way back to Bethany, the disciples see the fig tree and notice that it has withered. And they say, Lord, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. And Jesus takes, you know, this uh, teachable moment as an occasion to teach them about faith. If you had faith, uh, you would not only do this, you could say to the mountain, be cast into a sea, etc. Okay? And so they go back um, to to Bethany and then the next day back to Jerusalem. Now, when we turn to Matthew's gospel, we find something a little different. Matthew, in this would be chapter 21 in Matthew. Matthew recounts the um, triumphal entry into Jerusalem, so it's clearly Palm Sunday. Uh, many of the, some of the same details, but also some others that he adds that Mark doesn't have. Uh, and then Matthew tells us, after entering into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, Jesus goes to the temple and he cleanses the temple. He overturns the money changers' tables and uh, etc. According to Matthew, he does that on Palm Sunday, not on the following day. Then, according to Matthew, they go back out in the evening to Bethany, lodge for the night, get up in the morning, head back into Jerusalem. On the way into Jerusalem, Jesus looks at the fig tree. There's no fruit. He curses the fig tree. A little different words. May no fruit come from you again, but it's very close to what Mark said. And then Matthew says very clearly, the fig tree withered immediately. Parakrema. Instantly. It withers. And uh, Peter points this out. And he says, Lord, look, you know, the fig tree's withered. And Math- and then Jesus, at that point, gives um, the, the teaching about faith, similar to what's in Mark, but not exactly the same. Then they go into Jerusalem, etc. So, um, they both Gospels have Jesus cursing the fig tree on Monday morning, but Matthew places the um, cleansing of the temple the evening before, on Sunday, and he says that the fig tree uh, withered instantly and that Peter responded to it and Jesus gave the teaching immediately. So, you know, what do you, what do, you do with this? Some people who want, who, who simply cannot accept this idea that the biblical authors, the gospel writers in particular, exercise literary license will say, uh, it's got to be harmonized. We've got to make it work. And so we'll say, well, um, you know, the fig tree really did wither instantly, but um, only Peter noticed it. The others didn't notice it till later or whatever. You know, they'll, they'll come up with some more or less forced harmonization. And then they'll say, well, Jesus cleansed the temple twice, or rather he cleansed it three times because John has the cleansing of the temple at the beginning of Jesus' ministry two years earlier. Um, now, if this were the only place in the Gospels where you have this sort of problem, maybe you do harmonize it. Maybe you, you, you know, you make the best case you can for it. But in actual fact, this is the norm, this sort of literary license. And so if you try to harmonize everything in the Gospels, you're going to end up with a mountain of implausibilities piled on top of each other. And your harmonized Gospel is not really going to be teaching us 
what any of the four Gospels are teaching us. It's going to be a fifth Gospel. It's going to be your Gospel that you've constructed because you refuse to see that the um, that the the sacred authors under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit exercised a degree of literary license. I'm not saying anything goes. They they clearly don't treat the material that way. They're clearly concerned about real events, real people, real um, uh, you know facts. But they do, they um, they do exercise a degree of literary freedom, and the Holy Spirit used that. Uh, Ultimately, we have to reckon with the fact that what happens when biblical authors narrate something is that the events, the events that actually saved us, the events in which God revealed himself to us, take on a new mode of existence. They now exist in a verbal form, and they belong to the church that way, and they put us in touch with the person and the events, not in the way that, you know, raw video on YouTube does, but in a much better way, and in a way that is truly proper to the sort of events we're dealing with. Thank you so much for tuning in today. Follow us on Instagram at theyoungcatholic underscore podcast, and give us a five-star rating on iTunes if you would like. Hopefully you would. And uh, by doing this, more people will find the show. Do you have a question about Catholicism that you or a friend has been struggling with? Send them to me so that way I can feature them on this show. At the end of the day, your questions are what is going to keep this podcast going. So submit them on our website, tycpodcast.com. Also, I always forget to say this, but if this show is impacting your life and you would like to offer a monetary donation to the show, you can do so on our Anchor website, which is anchor.fm slash tycpodcast. The difference between that website and tycpodcast.com is that the Anchor website just has the episodes and you can donate, whereas tycpodcast.com you will have all of the episodes, the ability to contact us, and the ability to send us questions. I love doing this podcast, but it does take quite a bit of time to put together interviews, edit them, etc. So anything is greatly appreciated. And that's really all there is to say for today. So until next week for part two from one young Catholic to another, preach the truth as if you had a million voices. It is the silence that kills the world. St. Catherine of Siena.